Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. so much everyone for coming and I first want to say thank you to Rabbi Shmuley uh, and the JBC for this opportunity to come out from Israel now which is where I live at the moment. Um, I wanted to have this evening as an informal opportunity to have this uh, lecture or presentation so I thought I'd present and then um, uh, we'll have a Q&A session at the end but of course if anyone wants to chime in at any point to ask questions feel free to do so. And it is a hard topic, and I'll be addressing certain um, sensitive, difficult parts. So if it's a bit much for anyone, feel free to take a break and do whatever you need to do. I'll start with, I guess, with, this, the, with the beginning, the, how, how things unfolded in my personal story, my journey, uh, my family, and then to where I am today, which is really a victim's advocate, and I travel the world. Um, uh, focusing on the message uh, about child protection. So this is, the book is really an opportunity to talk about the issue at hand. Um, as Rabbi Shmuley said, I do come from a large ultra-Orthodox family, one of 17 children. I'm the second oldest and the oldest boy, which carries with it its unique um, responsibilities and, uh, and the perception within the community and the family structure and the expectation, not just the perception, my mother is uh, Yemenite Israeli, so hence the dark skin. My father is an Australian born, uh, he was secular Jew, became a Baal Teshuvah, became religious when, soon after he, the passing of his father, when my father was at about um, 19, 20 years old. I, did, uh, I was born in Israel and lived there till the age of seven with around half the family. It's almost one year difference between every child. It goes one, and a, one year and one month, one year and two months, and there's a, eventually you're missing because there are between uh, 21 years between the oldest and the youngest, so it's really uh, consecutive years. I mean, as a father myself now, three kids, we'll talk about that later, some of the questions and challenges. So about half the family, just under half the family, eight out of the 17 were born in Israel, and uh, we moved to Australia when I was young. We a Chabad family, and um, people aren't familiar with Chabad. Basically, Chabad is a Hasidic group, ultra-Orthodox. It's a lot more um, accepting, tolerant, and moderate than some of the other ultra-Orthodox, especially Hasidic groups. Um, in Australia, we were part of the Chabad community. Um, it was called the Yeshiva, Yeshiva community, Yeshiva center. There's one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. My father's family comes from Sydney, so initially we went to Sydney for the first year and a half. And things were normal, normal um, upbringing. 
however normal was defined, but in our circles it's really about focusing on religion. Every aspect of the day is really dedicated to that. Uh, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is wash your hands three times before you even touch your eyes. Um, as we were taught, often uh, things like uh, you may become blind if you touch your eyes without washing them. And of course, how was the water there? Because you, can, you can't walk more than three metres or so without washing your hands. So you have to think about this the night before and prepare the water beside you. So that's just an example of really how every aspect of the day is dictated by religion and it, its practices. In terms of any sex education or interactions between the sexes, of course, um, there is no such thing. Uh, even within the family environment, it's very... Uh, modest, the way they refer to it, and um, again, the, the, the community, the school, um, the, the weekend uh, sermons and, 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 and uh, services at synagogue, they're all one and the same, and it's all the same community. In the late 80s, so I'm, I'm now uh, 42, uh, late 80s, I would have been about the age of 11 or 12. Uh, we'd already been in Melbourne for a number of years, part of the community there. And there began a process of grooming. And to me, obviously, at the time, I had no idea what grooming meant. But what that means to people who aren't familiar with it is essentially when a, a pedophile or someone who intends to sexually assault a child grooms them for that sexual experience um, or sexual assault. And unfortunately, that is something that was going on back then with uh, my first abuser. His name is Velvel Serebransky. His father is one of the most senior rabbis in Australia, uh, emissary of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, Chabad Rabbi. And he used to also have the task of um, reading the Torah, reading the Bible in synagogue on the Sabbath every weekend. So someone known in the community and certainly respected, at least from the perspective of reading the, the Torah portions. And the way he groomed me, again, as a, as a member of a very large family, um, attention, um, gifts, those types of things, um, was not a common commodity, let's say. So he gave me those opportunities, and I'll never forget things like... Uh, he allowed me to drive his car at the age of 11 or 12 in the backyard of the Yeshiva Center. So those are the things that he gave to me and, and uh, I guess uh, kind of almost bought my trust and, and um, uh, belief in him as he's someone you know, that's okay to be around. Um, and then something happened on Shavuot night. Shavuot is a Jewish festival where it's traditional for... Um, within the Orthodox community, for males to stay awake all night and study the Torah, the Bible, or anything got to do with it, in the synagogue. And they have children's programs, and at some point the children and uh, can study with the adults and whatever happens, happens. Um, so this was at the Yeshiva Center, which is a Chabad institution across the road from my family home. Um, I went, I would have been 11 or 12 on that night, um, went upstairs, it was about one o'clock in the morning to take a break, and upstairs is the women's section, so there were no women um, on Shavuot night staying up to study. So I noticed as I went upstairs that um, 
someone was following me. I didn't catch a face, uh, but at some point I did realize it was him. Um, and it felt, something felt wrong. Can't explain it, but it just, something was wrong. And I got up to the ladies' um, section, the women's section, and I opened the door and I saw a friend of mine who was a, two years older than me, um, already fast asleep, lying down on, on, the, um, on the benches. So I went deliberately, it's a nice big space, I went deliberately not far from him, safety in numbers or whatever. I, again, didn't think anything was going to happen, but just something felt not right. Um, and then, sure enough, Velvel Serebransky was right behind me. And before he got in, I remember I laid down quickly and just closed my eyes, pretended to be asleep in the hope that, you know, he'll just see that I'm asleep. But obviously he was there about uh, 10 seconds later, so um, you just don't fall asleep that quickly. I kept my eyes shut and I just remember uh, he came right near me and I heard him and felt him coming next to me as I was lying down inside the synagogue and he was on his knees and he just started caressing me on my legs, made his way up, um, worked on and then genitalia area and was caressing it on my clothes inside the synagogue. And then at some point he said to me um, when he realised I mean, you know, he was aware that I was awake the whole time. He said to me, this isn't appropriate for a place like this, for a shul. We should go outside. And again, I don't know why I followed him and agreed. I remember I didn't say anything, but I did um, follow him. And before I knew it, we were in the bathroom, in the women's bathroom, uh, which was a few metres away from the outside door and uh, most of it I tried to shut out really but ultimately I was, I remember at the end of what happened which was thankfully um, at least not rape but uh, a lot of things besides from that and I just remember at some point getting up, I was on the floor and my pants and underpants were around my ankles um, Again, 11, 12-year-old boy, never had any sex education, never knew what, understood what was going on. And I just remember wanting to get out of there. I don't remember exchanging any words or saying anything, but just going, leaving, going home, and, and that's it. And I didn't say anything to anyone. At some point, um, for some reason, I allowed it to happen a few more times. Um, and it also happened in the synagogue. Eventually I made it clear to him that I um, wasn't interested in that, um, not that I felt that I made him any, uh, that I said or did anything that would um, show him or suggest to him that I was interested in what he had done until now, but um, somehow it stopped. And at some point I shared it with a friend of mine, um, Yorachmiel Gorolik, who I do name in the book. Uh, he was a classmate of mine, my closest friend at the time. And I didn't say everything what happened, but I did make references to some of this. And all I knew was that within a few days I would go, I went to school, and it seemed that everyone in the school knew because I was being called gay, a 
pufta. That's a it's derogatory. It's like a faggot in, in Australia. So derogatory word. So I'd been sexually abused, um, and then I'd come back to school after sharing it with a friend of mine, and getting re-abused in front of teachers, uh, adults who heard some of what the kids were saying, but no one ever stood up. That was a tough period. So then when about a few months later, my parents saw the behavioral changes, I started responding in, in kind, I guess, um, in, in the classroom at home. Um, but shortly after that, David Cyprus came along. David Cyprus, also a Chabad person within the Yeshiva Center. Um, he was also a karate teacher in charge of security for the whole institution under the Yeshiva Center, um, both in Melbourne and Sydney. There are synagogues, there's, there, are, there are schools, there's um, uh, youth groups, social welfare, so it's a broad umbrella. Um, so it's a big institution, and David Cyprus was what I would regard kind of almost every young boy's dream in terms of someone you'd look up to. He was a strong black belt in karate, he used to be the karate teacher, he used to take on the anti-Semites. Anytime we had, used to have anti-Semitism, you'd call David Cyprus. Um, and as someone who used to walk around with a, with a, with a you know, visibly Jewish, ultra-Orthodox, um, we used to have eggs pelted at us often and, and those types of experiences. So he was, he was our go-to person. And um, David started off with, at least what I remember, um, he used to pick us up and take us to the, um, to the training. And initially it began with inappropriate touching, things like just... He didn't wait long. It was more like direct touching on my genitalia area, on the clothing. So I'd get into this car, even if other people, other kids were right behind me, including on occasion two of my younger siblings, be right behind me. Somehow, as soon as I, he would make me always sit in the front seat while the others would sit in the back. And as I'd got in, he would always just molest me on my clothes. Dozens of times, if not hundreds, but it was standard. I just felt that was the price I had to pay for whatever, I wasn't quite sure, but it's something you have to put up with because anyway, I got to hang out with David Cyprus and um, I used to be able to do some patrols occasionally and he, whenever he used to take on the anti-Semites, I used to have a, a, a front seat with him. So there was, you know, there were, it had its perks. Um, but then of course it escalated. It wasn't just about the, um, about the molestation. It wasn't just about the inappropriate touching. It was also, um, that's when, I started understanding that Cyprus was that had um, it, it was it was it was sociopathic in in some ways because you know he would punish me occasionally made me run with my pants and underpants down and just for doing something wrong um, ostensibly he'd make it up and then force me to do those types of things inside the classroom he used to put me strategically in the back of the class while others were up ahead of me. Um, and then he'd come in the middle of the class, tell everyone, focus, stay forward, look, no one looking anywhere. Um, and then he used to come and molest me in front. That means no one saw. They were all looking ahead, but just do those types of things. Um, and then, of course, there was that one episode, one incident, which was particularly traumatic. 
I actually haven't spoken about my story for a while, I must say, because um, over the last couple of years, and we'll go to that, I've, I've taken on more the victim's advocate um, role and talking about it and kind of my story I've been able to push to the side or I'd said it so many times, but this is the first time, so it's kind of catching up with me a little bit, so I apologise. But um, it took me to the mikvah, which is a male ritual bath, which we used to go every morning um, as a spiritual place. And I'll just leave it at that. It was, it was horrible what he did. And I walked home. I was across the road, so I walked home. Didn't share it with anyone, especially after what happened the first time when I shared it with a friend. Um, it taught me to make sure not to share anything with anyone. But still, it turns out enough people knew they worked it out. Uh, I'm not quite sure how or why, but it was. It became known, and I'll just, uh, I'll explain how and why this became known. Later on, it became known. I obviously started um, playing up at school, or it became worse. Um, my studies, I wasn't interested, and of course, my parents, my family, um, had no idea that this was going on. It's not a topic of, for discussion, certainly not within the ultra-Orthodox community, but even broader society back in the 80s, no one really spoke about these issues. Um, my parents consulted with the rabbis, what do you do when your eldest boy is being a terrible role model to many, many children under him, and there's that important role of that eldest boy. Uh, so it was decided to withdraw me from regular schooling, from general studies, and we need to um, give Manny more, Menachem as I was called then, to give him uh, more spiritual guidance and study. So you take him out of maths and English and science and all of those subjects and give him more Hasidic studies and Bible studies and give him good people around rabbis who can try to encourage him. And they sent me to Israel for six months to Bnei Brak, which is the most ultra-Orthodox city in Israel. Um, in the hope that I would um, that would rub off on me, uh, didn't quite work out. Um, I was just a train wreck. Uh, I was trouble everywhere I went. Um, in Chabad, there is the focus on on happiness, but with happiness com uh, comes the focus of alcohol. So it was readily available from the age of fourteen. Everywhere I went. Um, keeping. Um, religious commandments became something I was completely disinterested in. I remember the first time I desecrated the Sabbath uh, um, was to turn the light switch on and off. And just doing that after you're being raised that, you know, the punishment, certainly back in the old days for desecrating the Sabbath is motumat, you will be put to death. So it's not as if I thought that I was going to drop dead or someone was going to come to kill me, but the psychological barrier, doing those types of things was a challenge. Um, eating the first nokosha meal was, I remember I thought I'd go soft, I love my schnitzel and try a schnitzel, you know, not, not pork, but something that was easier to do. 
And it was just disgusting because, again, psychologically, I was always taught it's trafe. It's not just not kosher. It's just it's, it's anathema to us Jews. And um, I forced it down. And then with time, it became a lot easier to do all those things. But religion really disinterested me. Rabbis and people in positions of authority completely disinterested me. But again, my parents tried, put me in, in, in a range of uh, religious institutions in Australia, in Melbourne and Sydney. I got kicked out of both of those institutions. And again, no one really asked questions. Um, and despite the fact that so many people actually knew, as it turns out. So we have to fast forward. I'm just going to make sure I look at the time. Um, in, at the age of 18, when um, I'd been in, in, the, in the yeshiva system until, uh, until then, until basically a few months before the age of 18, I decided I was going to make aliyah, emigrate to Israel, um, primarily to serve in the Israeli army. That was kind of what I was going to do. And I had to wait till the age of 18. And the aliyah office got me a, a, a ticket. And I flew, I got on a flight to Israel and I took a razor with me on that flight. Because until then I'd been wearing a kippah and within the family environment. And those were the days you were allowed to take most things with you on the plane. And um, as, soon as, uh, as soon as I took off, I went into the bathroom, took that shaver, the razor, and shaved the little speckles that I had on, my, on me. But of course I had no idea that you needed shaving cream or gel. <laughs> so... It was, a, it was a, a lesson in shaving or how not to shave, um, having tissues all over me with uh, uh, blood marks on my face. But that was the kind of the transition that was leaving Australia and my community behind and I'm going to go try and make a, a start a life for myself. And it was kind of the, the first or second stylish haircut I had. I remember at Thai airport I had a, a break there so I went to get a haircut the haircut and they managed to sell me some gel and explain to me how to do it till this day I still haven't worked out how to how to use gel so I don't bother um, but that was kind of that difference um, and, and within Melbourne Australia I was with family with friends community here I was in the big world all by myself and my, my late grandfather uh, my on my parents my, my mother's side sorry uh, come stay with me and you can you know you don't have to be religious you don't have to worry about all these things um, they didn't last too long because he was a very religious man and he just could not live with the fact that I wasn't interesting, interested in keeping the Sabbath and the likes. So at some point, um, he kicked me out as well. Um, after I forgot to mention as well, during the time I was playing up in my mid-teenage years, the age of 15, I was kicked out of the home for the first time as well. Um, Again, yeah, simply parents didn't know how to, how to respond, how to react. Um, went to the army and I, I'll skip over some of the things um, then at the age, so at the age of um, 20, while I was in the middle of the army, I, I was in the Golani Brigade, which is an infantry unit. So that, I did that for most of my service. Um, my sister was getting married in 1996. I was 20 years old. And so I got permission from the army to go. We get one month a year to go and visit family. And I got there and my parents allowed me to stay over at their place, even though I was completely secular. And don't forget, you know, there would have been many kids, almost all the kids were in the house then. Um, they put me up in the attic, so there wouldn't be too much interaction between the younger kids and myself. And then I heard something on the radio, Operation Paradox, the police were advertising, if you have any information about child sexual abuse, come let us know. And that was the first time I even considered going to the police. 
So straight away, as soon as I heard that, I went downstairs. My dad had an office in the house and I went and shared it with my father for the first time and told him David Cypress and Velvet Sobransky sexually abused me and I just heard on radio that um, we should call the police. So if you don't mind, maybe call the police. Of course, he was shocked, but to his credit, he just asked a few questions, but um, um, got over the shock and called the police and they were there very soon after, I don't know if it was that day, the next day, but they were there, they got statements. My first perpetrator, Velvel Serebransky, had already left to New York. This was in 96. So it was before internet or mainstream use of internet, so times are different now, but they left it, they couldn't do anything about it, couldn't interview him. That was it. David Cyprus, who was to me the, the more violent and, and really the pedophile, he denied everything, of course. So the police ultimately got back to me and said, we're not going to close the case, but we're going to leave it open, open pending further information. At the same time, I went to the head rabbi, the late Rabbi Groner, who lives around the corner, lived around the corner from where my parents lived, so we ran into each other often. And I went up to him, we crossed paths, and I said, and I started talking to him about what had happened. I didn't have to say anything. He knew it all. That's why we're saying later it turns out he and others knew about everything, um, or at least about David Cypress, who was the employed by the school. He said to me, you don't need to do anything about it. We're dealing with it, um, making sure that he's getting psychological help. But still, David Cypress was in charge of security for many years before, many years after, and I'll... Fast forward a little bit to explain the, the greater uh, absurdity and shock of it all. So again, as a 20-year-old kid, finally I've gone to the police, gone to the rabbis, and I've just had the, the door slammed in my face. Can't do anything about it. And I'm seeing Cyprus in charge of security, standing there in charge of kids, access to kids. Uh, that really made things very difficult for me, and I found it very difficult to... Uh, to, to continue living as if business as usual. So instead of, of that one month break that I was supposed to be in Australia, I ended up being there for five months, uh, which got me into trouble, of course, when I got back to Israel and just continue serving in the army. I had to go for, for being AWOL. I had to go into a military prison and I didn't want to explain to them what happened. So I just, I guess, um, bore the, the consequences. And I, I went back to Israel and just finished my service. Um, I then met my a girl, um, pretty much one of the one of the few non-Jews I could meet in Israel. Um, she happened to be from Norway. Um, she did a conversion uh, process, Orthodox, uh, soon after, but not got to do with me. I made sure that she was aware that. She didn't need to do anything for me and I wasn't involved in being in that process and I wasn't. Um, and then we came back to Australia in 2000, in March 2000. Uh, I just had enough at the time living in Israel. I was there for about six years and I thought I'd start life again. I had to catch up on all my secular education. My English was pretty um, ordinary because I finished 
official English um, schooling at the age of 12 and, and all the other subjects, so it really wasn't up to standard. So I had to do my year 12 equivalent, call it VCE in Melbourne, and, um, and then did that. I read my first novel and at the age of 26, um, so restarted my life from that perspective. Went to university, got a degree in international relations, and, and that was the first opportunity to study and to learn things um, which don't have to do with religion, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was an enriching experience, but it was also an interesting experience at the time because um, I was at a La Trobe University, uh, and, and many universities are known to be left-wing, but I just come from the army, and my own interaction with, with Muslims and, and Arabs was really as a soldier um, in, a, in, a, in a position of, of power over them, um, especially as an infantry soldier. So the dynamics were interesting because suddenly I'm sitting in a classroom with Arabs and Muslims, and including people from Palestinian backgrounds. So that was a learning curve for me. And I was pretty much in that international relations degree. I was um, one of two or three on the, on the right of things, whereas everyone else was very left-wing. So I had a good opportunity to, to practice my debating skills. And, uh, and, and it was actually a very interesting uh, experience that I think probably I gained a great deal from, just as much as I did from the general uh, academic side. During that whole time, this is in the early 2000s, and I got my degree, I graduated from university in 2005. During that whole time, David Cyprus was still in charge of security. And don't forget, 1996, the head rabbi acknowledged that they knew about David Cyprus. Still in charge. So that anger did not, was not able to, 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 to go away. Not that it would have gone away, but that anger and seeing what was going on. My parents or family were still living across the road from Yeshiva. So every time I'd go there for lunch on Shabbat, on the Sabbath and the like, I'd see him. And my, my, that, that, that was their synagogue. And my brother had a bar mitzvah. I had to go to that synagogue to go through David Cyprus. He essentially had to give me authorization to enter. And it was just angering, bewildering. But that's what they did. They kept him there. I then got my first job in 2005, 2006, sorry, at the... Um, B'nai B'rith at the Anti-Defamation Commission, which is the equivalent of the ADL here, combating anti-Semitism and racism, civil rights movement. Uh, was, that was really the first opportunity for me to understand the concept of advocacy and the influence of media. I'd gone to the police, gone to the rabbis, nothing had happened. Here's an opportunity, maybe go to the media. But in 2004, we had our first child. So... My wife at the time said, and ultimately I agreed with her, that the taboos and the stigma associated with the issue of child sexual abuse would be doing more harm than good, especially to our kids. At the time, one kid, but then in 2006 we had a second, and in 2008 we had a third. Um, and we stopped there, so three kids. Um, and we'd made that decision. And I'm going to fast forward a bit because there's a fair bit more to get through. Um, in, two th in 2009, I got a, a position with the Australian government in counter-terrorism. Um, I got an executive level position, so I had to fly to Canberra, which is the capital city of Australia, and um, held that job for a few years. But then, and during that time, I continued volunteering within the Jewish community in a range of 
um, of positions, uh, whether it was through uh, Capital Jewish Forum, which was my own initiative within the Jewish community, or uh, in the mainstream Jewish community, through um, when I was in Canberra, I became the president of the Jewish community there, and ultimately a vice president of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, which is the you don't really have the uh, a peak body in the Jewish community that represents all the states. Um, they have it more in the uh, like in the UK. They have it in France, um, but that's what we have in Australia. So I really was dedicated to the Jewish community and was very much uh, supportive and 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 heavily involved in it from a number of perspectives there. And in 2011, exactly when I was a vice president of the community, there were a number of of, um, of things that happened that unfolded that really presented me with the dilemma of that choice that I had in 2006 that I need to take a position. And ultimately what won out and um, made me go and speak out publicly about what had happened to me was the fact that I was a leader in the Jewish community and I felt that if I'm genuinely a leader, you need to take a leadership position, especially on this issue, because if I'm not going to uh, address this issue, no one else will, because it happened to me and it won't be any easier for someone else because, as it turns out later, I understood all the complexities associated with it. So in 2011, on the 8th of July, um, in the lead-up to it, I spoke to a journalist and, um, and there was an article that was published in The Age newspaper, front page there, and as a result of that, suddenly I was thrust into the public, in the public domain on this issue. I'd already been a public figure in Australia, but on other, um, in other contexts. But suddenly I was getting contacted from around the world, um, from other victims and survivors of child sexual abuse, their family members, therapists, media, psych uh, uh, anyone who's wanted to speak to someone who's acknowledged, especially someone um, who's male within the Orthodox community, who's said, saying that you know, they were sexually abused, there hadn't been anyone like that before. Um, as far as I'm aware, even in the, in the world, in the, in the Jewish world. So it was really an opportunity. So suddenly I'm trying to do my full-time work in the Australian government and at the same time trying to deal with what was going on. Um, again, I need to fast forward, but ultimately I realised that I couldn't do everything and this role was imposed on me. I had to move back to Melbourne with the family. Initially there was a lot of support within the Jewish community. Um, everyone was saying, it's wonderful, well done, thank you. Shortly after, it all changed, the tide changed. And there were different reasons from different sectors. It depends who you're coming from. From the yeshiva, Chabad community, it was clear, similar to the Catholic Church, it was about maintaining the reputation. The general line was, okay, you've raised it, this is more the, the more tolerant line was, you've raised this issue, now please be quiet and go away and we can all move forward. Um, literally that was it. Let's, let's now try to focus. You've raised it and people are talking about it. Let's move on. Uh, others really fought back and just started um, harassing the family in the various ways, um, defaming, making up outright lies. And then, and I guess this is what the title of the book, Who Gave You Permission? That's the, within two weeks of when that uh, article in The Age on the 8th of July, the, the chief rabbi, uh, Rabbi Telsner, the head rabbi of the Yeshiva Center, who is the son-in-law of the late Rabbi Groner, who was the head 
of everything. So there was a, obviously a conflict of interest there. Got up on his, on, on, in, during his sermon in synagogue, in front of a packed synagogue. My parents were there as well and yelled out, who gave you permission to speak about this? And he was referring to myself and to my parents. And as a result, immediately after those words, when, he's, when, he, when he was clear to everyone who he was referring to, and, then, and, and Rabbi Telsner said, if you think I'm referring to you, then yes, it's you. So he, but he didn't obviously have the, 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 the courage or whatever you need to actually name someone. Um, my father, my mother, and about six or seven other women got up and walked out in the middle of the sermon. On the one hand, that's impressive that anyone actually did walk out, but on the other hand, there were many others who didn't. But that was the tone that was set. Others had an issue. For example, Australia is a very, um, per capita, it's the second highest Holocaust survivors outside of Israel. Um, so the attitude by some, the second generation, third generation, it, was, it may attract anti-Semitism because the anti-Semites, this is giving them fodder, it'll tarnish the community, as if anti-Semites really need an excuse to hate the Jews. But that, that, was, um, that was the argument. Um, it got nasty, it got horrible, it got violent towards my father, for example, because my parents actually did stand up for me, uh, especially my father. With all the flaws over the years, um, I wouldn't say they were perfect parents. Very far from that, they were not. Um, but that's for a different story, a different day. And I do talk about uh, my parents and their parenting in the book as well. Um, and we've had discussions around it. But they did stand up for me. They did what most parents don't do, whether in religious circles or not. And they bore the brunt of it. My father was refused, it was excommunicated from the community. My mother was the president of the women's Chabad organization, the Sheikh Chabad. She was helpful there for many years, arranging there as, as much as she has 17 kids and busy and all that. Somehow she's always managed to do many things. And uh, she's a dynamic woman. And they just shunned them. As simple as that. Um, and as an inside synagogue, my father was physically assaulted by, by a prominent community member. There were witnesses, and when he was ready to give a police statement, he did give a police statement. None of the, none of the witnesses wanted to stand up, of course, because, and one of them said to him, how am I going to marry my daughter off? So that is the kind of attitude that, that, was, um, that we were being faced with. And um, on the blogs and social media, it got nasty. Um, but I decided to fight back and to uh, ultimately establish an organization that's called Tzedek, Justice in Hebrew, uh, to provide the support that victims and survivors and their families require and at the same time advocate for them. And, uh, and that's what I did in Australia with the support of the Australian government and philanthropists. I was able to raise funding and I left my job, quit my career and was focusing on this issue full time. It's difficult to actually go back and to relive those moments. There is the abuse that I endured, and I described some of it before. There's the cover-ups that I touched on that become clear in a moment. But then there's the intimidation and attacks from the community members and leaders, including not just the rabbis and not just the rabbinate, as I'll explain in a moment to what extent it, to, to what extent it got. But it was also the lay leaders, those who aren't orthodox, those who are just secular, my colleagues, 
I said, the president of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, some of the others involved there, not only were some of them not supporting, some of them were actively involved in, 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 in the process of the attacks against myself and my family, undermining me in every way, shape or form. And one of them, Dr. Danny Lamb, still a, Jewish, a leader in the Jewish community there today. And I've gone on the record and I've talked about it in the book and elsewhere, so I have no problem naming names and I try to not name names if people have taken responsibility and, 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 and acknowledged and apologised and, and I'll explain about some of that as well in a moment. But it was just the most disgraceful situation to be in. I can tell you now my, my ex-wife, um, the traumas that that entire process of those few years was on par with the sexual abuse itself, on par at least. Because, you know, to me, I can understand that there are some sick or twisted people out there who are looking for gratification of sorts, pedophiles, sexual sex offenders, there are those people. But what I cannot understand or accept is the fact that leaders will not only cover things up like this, but actively participate in the exact opposite of what they have been preaching for years. This is what I grew up with. Love your fellow Jew, human, Jew. It was always about the fellow Jew, but um, it was another mantra. If you embarrass one person, a single person in front of others, it's as if you've destroyed an entire world. You know, all these types of mantras. It was all words, no deeds, because one after the other, especially the rabbis and the rabbinates, institutions, not just individual rabbis. These are institutions where I won't get into it, but in the book I talk about the conflicts of interest, you understand what goes on there, especially in a community like Australia, where it's not very big and we've got over, just over 100,000 Jews. But you can imagine the Orthodox community and the number of rabbis, a lot of them are family members into marriage there. So aside from protecting the institution, it's all about, also about protecting the families. So the attacks were incessant. They were daily, they were challenging. It tore my family apart, not just the ex-wife, my immediate, you know, and the three kids that we have, um, but 16 brothers and sisters, everyone has their view. And, you know, some of us are opinionated, as you can imagine, some have taken other paths, but, you know, everyone and some of them are within Chabad. Um, so it really did tear the family. Ultimately, in about 2014, my parents were forced to leave Australia. There was a decision. They were forced to leave their house, to sell their house, which was a struggle because it was a big house almost purpose-built for a large Chabad family in the heart of the Chabad family across the road from Yeshiva with five kosher kitchens, meat, dairy, parv, and then Passover, meat and dairy. Um, you know, so it was, it was catered for a specific house and no one was really interested in buying the house. Um, no one was interested in being involved with anything got to do with my family. Ultimately, they did manage to sell the house many years, a couple of years after they put it on the market. 
um, they, because they did have a business, my mother has a wig store. Um, so that's actually there, you know, especially in the last few years after my father stopped, he was a computer consultant. Um, but he, so after they, they, they focused on the wig shop, so essentially they still have that wig shop today, uh, but they bought a house, a smaller house that's an, around where the store is, but far away from where the Chabad community is, and now they share their time between Australia and Israel. They live um, in Israel probably just over most of the, the year. But they, live, they, they moved to Israel, and about six months later, basically, we were forced to leave as well. Um, it just got too much. The, and, and again, and I, on the one side, I don't want to dwell on the past, but and, and on, the other, on the other side, it's also very difficult to convey what it is when you wake up every morning and you, know, you, you get hate mail or you see hate messages and you see lies, utter lies, by people who you grew up with. Um, and then you see the fact that good rabbis are standing by and doing nothing. Um, so there was that, and there was also the, during that period of, as I was saying, Tzedek was a victim support agency. I'm not a psychologist, I'm, a, I'm more of a professional in international relations and in communications and the like. Um, but having sat through a couple of years of hearing countless stories of victims coming forward, and of course I neglected, neglected, neglected to mention a very important um, uh, piece of progress that happened as a result of speaking out, because within a few months of when I disclosed my story in 2011, about 15 other victims of David Cyprus, my second abuser, went to the police. And therefore, um, David Cyprus today is in jail for sexually abusing. He, he got convicted in relation to nine of us, Nine boys got eight years for that. He, including, he got five charges of rape against one of the children. It was a terrible story, and I remember at the time, when you know, listening to the victim impact statements and, and all of that in court, you know, a knife was used in, in one of the cases, and and in one of the other cases when he was raping one of the boys, um, who was my age, and I knew about it at the time, and so did others. He put clothing in, in his mouth to shut him up while he was yelling. Horrific stories, horrific stories. But at least we got a semblance of justice, something that most victims never get. Um, and besides from that, David Kramer, a former teacher, who I should note, again it's in the book, um, sexually abused two of my siblings as well, as well as dozens of other kids. So I, there were three of us, which is consistent in, um, with the, st the statistics of one in five. The US government, Australian government, Israeli government, according to statistics, it's one in five children before the age of 18 experiences some form of sexual abuse. So I guess statistically, out of 17 children, there's three of us. I suspect there could be another one or two. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if that ever happens, but that's what we're aware of. And David Kramer, who was who's sexually abusing, again, dozens of kids in, in the classroom at Yeshiva Center, putting kids on his lap while teaching, covering up the clothing and molesting them in front of the other students. And when this came to the attention of the Yeshiva Center, initially they didn't want to do anything, but then they were forced to do something by 
a couple of people, my father included, uh, this we're talking about in the early 90s, this happened. Uh, they sent him away without telling the authorities. And of course, he went to Israel and then went to America, reoffended in America, sat in jail in St. Louis um, for sexually assaulting a kid there. And, um, and then subsequently was extradited back to Australia um, in two, after 2011 when all of this became a public issue and sat in jail there. Um, so the fact when I spoke out publicly in 2011 as a result of that, suddenly, not just in the Orthodox community, but in the Jewish community, there was a discussion that was being had around the issue of child sexual abuse, something that hadn't happened till that day. Um, so while I was suffering the intimidation and, and, and all the things that were going on by leaders and by community members, uh, there was still all that positive progress that was going on. And I was seeing the, the fruits of my work um, actually bearing fruit because you're seeing suddenly parents are contacting and asking questions and, and they're saying, you know, we used to send our kids to, to a summer camp, but, you know, we always made sure that there was a, a, a doctor or first aid person, but we never asked about policies and who, who's looking after our kids and all those types of things. So, you know, and organisations, in, in, in Jewish organisations started thinking about policies and procedures. Um, so it really changed the conversation in the Australian community. And as I was saying, in Maccabi, not an orthodox group, suddenly a number of, uh, of, of girls who'd been sexually abused over there uh, by one of the coaches, you know, they reached out and I supported them and, and others in other community groups, not just in Melbourne, in Sydney. So it really had a snowball effect, um, mainly on, on, the, on the positive side. So I was up to the part where basically we felt that we had to leave and that's what we did. In late 2014, we decided that we were going to leave. My uncle owned a property, owns a property in France, in the countryside. He said, why don't you just take some time off and go there and see what happens. And I'm, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do, where we were going to go. We felt completely, um, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Excommunicated, but there's, there's, the, the, the community turned its back on us, completely um, abandoned us, and it was just very, very hurtful. And we went to France, French countryside. It's lovely. I recommend it for a holiday, but I'm a city boy. I'm a city boy, and, you know, we are going to go just see a few months. We ended up staying there for about 10 months. Uh, in fact, we, that's the majority of the time I spent actually writing the book, um, or co-writing it. And, but that time, I must say, if we're talking about the abuse and the intimidation and the cover-ups and all of that, um, that was the lowest point in my life in France. And I'll, I'll, I want to get back to the Royal Commission in a moment, but I just want to talk about the impact of abuse and I guess the impact on each person, firstly, who endures that is very different. It's very personal, depends on who the abuser was. Um, if they ever disclosed um, the, the, what happened in, during the abuse, um, the resilience, the personality of the individual. So there's a range of factors. I've met people who have um, been abused on the lower end and the impact seems to have been on the higher end and vice versa. Um, but that's when things started falling apart for me in many ways. And I've only, I only started talking about the impact of the abuse 
and the impact of the advocacy really during the writing process because interestingly in the beginning in 2011 uttering the words child sexual abuse or sexual assault was extremely uncomfortable and it wasn't common. No one really spoke about it. It was before the Me Too campaign. It was before this issue became a lot more discussed. So it was, you can just see when you speak, when, you, when I uttered the words, you know, I suffered abuse or child sexual abuse, people became visibly uncomfortable, didn't know how to handle it. Um, but then by 2014, 2015, it already, and, and beyond, it became a lot more uh, prevalent to have those discussions and people became more comfortable. However, what people didn't understand and didn't, were not comfortable with, is the impact, and when you start talking about things like mental health issues, depression, anxiety, suicide, um, all sorts of things like that, substance abuse, people don't know how to deal with that. And in many ways, I actually had no one to speak to about any of these things. I hadn't gone to therapy, I'd, because again, in the Chabad environment, ultra-Orthodox environment, who goes to therapists? It's either Weak people or the crazies? I'm not weak, I'm not crazy, so I'm not going to go. And I did go once or twice, I did try, but I wasn't really open to it because I didn't really understand. I went, I spoke, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm good, I'm all fine. And that's it. And, you know, besides for a couple of times. So I never really, never focused about healing myself, healing process. And as I was saying, as a victim's advocacy and support group, so many victims came to me to share, just to share their story. In some cases, they wanted me to refer them to therapy or to legal support. Or sometimes I personally went with them to the local police station to make a formal complaint about they, the abuse they endured. And common misconception is most abuse happens within institutions because that's what we read about. The reality is most abuse happens within the family environment, within the family home. And it gets even more complicated there because there's a, a family member involved. And then the family, uh, you know, especially if it's a grandfather or a stepfather or an uncle, it tears families apart. But all of those things and what I later learned to, to there's a term for it. There was my trauma to deal with, but then all of a sudden there's vicarious trauma that I'm dealing with. And at no point was I really looking after myself. I did at a certain point um, get someone who I could go to who, who was a retired psychiatrist, but he, he came on more as a kind of someone, a sounding board and to be able to manage the way I was feeling and dealing with things. Um, but ultimately I went to France and this was kind of a, 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 a prelude to explain, to try to explain and articulate what it is I was experiencing. And I don't think I'll ever be able to explain it. All I can say is in some ways that I'm lucky to be alive today. It's as simple as that. Um, my kids, basically, they are the reason that made me live through those tough, dark days. Um, and the, the, the second reason, the, the second motivation to um, remain alive and to continue doing what I'm doing uh, is the work, is the work that I was seeing that just needed to be done. No one else, I mean, there are a number of advocates and organisations doing important work, mostly in the victim support space and, and, and sometimes in the education space, but there's not in the advocacy doing what I'm doing, especially within the Jewish world. So not demographic, not just in the Orthodox community and not just in Australia or in Israel, really looking at it holistically, really empowered me to continue on this journey to say, it's tough, stick it out. But it was a battle 
I won't, I won't even say it wasn't a daily battle. Sometimes it was a, a minute by minute battle of just focusing and just saying, <coughs> you know, went to the extent of writing a farewell letter, suicide letter to my kids, which thankfully I never shared with them, but I did keep it to show it to them at once at some stage later in life. But that was the depths to which I sunk. And in France, alone, um, the family, no, no real family and friends there. Um, I still continued working. I travelled the world still seemingly functional. Most people had absolutely no idea what I was going through because I didn't share it. And this was, that's what I was saying, before the time that I could actually express it, which actually really came out in my book and then gave me the feeling that I could continue doing, uh, talking about these issues without really feeling shame or guilt or whatever it is um, that, that people who experience these types of, um, of situations, not only the abuse itself that people feel <laughs> guilty and, 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 and ashamed about, but also then with all the consequences and saying, you know, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have all these difficult things that I've had to confront, um, been confronted with and to deal with them. So... That was a learning curve. Ultimately, I didn't want to go back to Israel because I'd had that six years between 94 and 2000. Um, and I just didn't want to live in Israel again. We were literally, we started looking at schools in Berlin. Just thought we'd start in Europe. My ex-wife is from Norway. We thought, you know, Norwegian, a European lifestyle. We'll see how we go with that. But it soon became clear because of my work or what I was doing. Mind you, I wasn't getting paid for any of my work and I'm still not paid for my work. Um, that's a separate matter. But um, I ju we just thought it makes most sense to be in Israel. Um, that would be the easiest to continue the work. And the Colva Oz, the organisation that I um, established to focus on this issue globally, it made most sense. And that's why we decided to, uh, to remain there or to move there, relocate there. Um, I must say, I will need to talk about the Royal Commission in a moment, but I'll finish this off, then I'll talk about the Royal Commission and open it up. Um, I immensely dislike living in Israel. Um, culturally, it's not my home. I guess a lot of it has to do with the fact also that the circumstances in which we ended up there probably um, didn't make things any easier. But it is where we are now, and especially now after... I need some... Is there a yeah. tissue? Just... Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've got my kids there and I've now got an ex-wife who lives there, so uh, we're going to make the most of it and I'm going to make the most of it uh, until I can get out. The way I feel now is I'm going to go back to Australia at some point uh, when I can. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, just the Royal Commission, before I open up questions, you're probably wondering what is the Royal Commission, what I'm talking about, if you haven't heard of the term. The Australian government in 2012, the end of 2012, launched what's called, it's a mouthful, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. It's a government, um, it's the highest form of government inquiry in Australia. Thank you for that. Um, the role was not to look into the um, perpetrators, rather it was to look at how institutions responded to allegations of abuse. Not just Jewish community, not just the Catholic Church, not just 
religious community. It was, it was every, it was sporting clubs, etc. That five-year um, initiative, it literally finished up uh, at the end of 2017, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was a massive game changer because what it did was, I was talking to you about before the core cases that was happening, all the wonderful developments, still people didn't quite understand the issues. What the Royal Commission allowed, it provided the opportunity for any victim of institutional sexual, institutional child sexual abuse to come forward and to have an, a personal, um, to share their story personally um, with former judges, commissioners, six high level commissioners. And then what they would do is look at the material, analyze it, and, and have a look at some, um, some indicators, key indicators, and, and, and what they can do to find out more information to get to the bottom of the situation. And what they did was, for example, if they saw a number of victims coming from this certain institution, they would then look more closely at that institution. So I lobbied them to look at the Yeshiva Centre in Melbourne in particular, because there were dozens of victims there and multiple perpetrators. And again, I didn't mention this, um, I had a record of about 15 alleged perpetrators just from the Yeshiva Centre in Melbourne and dozens of victims, alleged victims, because we, they haven't gone through a court process for a range of reasons. But um, ultimately, the, they decided, and I obviously I encouraged many victims, as many as possible, to go to, the, to share their stories. Um, and just to give you some numbers, there were about 8,500 victims from around Australia who went to speak, to, to take on this opportunity. The vast majority of them were men, contrary to the fact that most uh, women or most victims of child sexual abuse, women end up going to um, therapy and looking after themselves and the like. Most of these people were men who had never shared their stories with anyone. Um, interesting um, statistics that came out of that. Uh, as well that we can all learn from and, and, and understand um, in terms of how to deal with this. But because we've got a rush, I'll just focus very briefly on what happened as a result of those. They decided to do it on both the Yeshiva Centre in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and essentially they brought the leadership of both of those institutions one by one. They, it was a court of law, cross-examined them. And some of this is available on footage through um, a couple of documentaries that were made about the story called Code of Silence and Breaking the Silence. And in the Breaking the Silence, you will see, because um, it, was, it was actually um, live streamed around the world, what was going on there. You see rabbis, firstly, that's when they decided to apologise for the first time to me personally and my family. It took them, this happened in early 2015. We, I left with my family in January 2015, before I knew that the Royal Commission was going to have this public hearing. Uh, but we'd already made our plans to, to leave, so they flew me back to um, give uh, evidence at the Royal Commission. It was for two weeks, nine to five basically, or 10 to four every day for two weeks, rabbi after rabbi, leader after leader from the Yeshiva Center community and sometimes even beyond, because a lot of the Yeshiva Center community members and leaders and rabbis are all incumbents, they had power in charge of all the rabbinic bodies. And it got to such a stage where Australia's most senior rabbi, Rabbi Meir Shlomo Kluvgant, he was the president 
of the Organization of Rabbis of Australasia, which was the peak Orthodox rabbinic body in Australia. And you see the footage there, and he didn't know that I had a piece of information of something of, of caught him out. He was someone who was intimidating victims, the chief rabbi equivalent of Australia, intimidating victims, encouraging them not to go to the police. A Chabad rabbi from the Yeshiva Center, all associated with the same people and the same rabbis. And we got him there, and my lawyer, I had a lawyer representing me, um, at this cross-examination, she gave him the evidence and he tried to deny in the beginning and then she just put it straight out to him, did you say those things? And he said yes, within a few days, and it doesn't matter what he said, I say it all in the book and it's on the documentaries, but ultimately within a few days he lost all his jobs. That organisation, the Organisation of Rabbis of Australasia was shut down because it wasn't just him that was corrupt and intimidating, it was the entire rabbinate that was rotten to the core. And those words, rotten to the core, was a term used by the Australian Jewish News to describe how rotten the orthodox rabbinate was in Australia. Rabbi after rabbi, not only did they stand idly by when me, my family and all of them was, and many other victims were suffering, some of them were actively involved in the intimidation. Where did we have to go? We had nowhere to go. And imagine me, the one who was leading the campaign, trying to give hope to all these victims who were watching what was going on. And ultimately, back to the apologies, at the Royal Commission, one after one, they apologised. Belated apology, but it was an apology. Sometimes years afterwards, even. The Executive Council of Australian Jewry, I think a year ago, finally apologised to me. Of course, Dr Danny Lamb refused. He, he stood down. He, he's now... Uh, still a senior leader in the Jewish community for many years afterwards. But he was involved in going on radio, on, on Australian radio, essentially by what he was saying, siding with the Yeshiva Center and essentially making me out to be a liar and someone who's been, no apology from him, but at least from his institution, uh, or his former institution. The Yeshiva Center did apologize, ultimately. In fact, they flew me from Australia, from Israel, to come to publicly apologize to me in Australia. We've gone through a process, this has been over the last couple of years. Um, I'm not sure, I've now, today, if, you, if I would have spoken a few months ago, I would have said that that institution has no hope of reforming itself. Um, rabbi Telsner, the rabbi who talks about, you know, who gave you permission, the one who was involved leading, it was found at the Royal Commission, so they had findings after these cross-examinations and, and, and research that they did and interviews these commissioners came out with findings. And these findings were that Rabbi Telsner was guilty of X and Y and Z. The Yeshiva Center was guilty of X. All these rabbis, the cover-ups, all of those. So it was all, I was fully vindicated. Yet, despite all of that, the Yeshiva Center, again, people, um, there were some things going on behind the scenes literally in the last few months. But I can tell you that that institution, he's still a paid employee, Rabbi Telsner there. Rabbi Chaim Tzvi Groner, the, father, the, the son of the late uh, person, he was on the board of trustees for decades, knew what was going on, yet he's still on the board. So there are some fundamental issues there. There is still victim intimidation going on there amongst other victims that I've been informed of. So there are still some key issues, and again, we can go on and on, but I, and I'm sure I've left some other probably critical things here, but I just wanted to share a flavour of... I guess my journey, but also the life of those who have experienced child sexual abuse, because as I said, the statistics of 20% of the population, it's likely that 
could be more victims in this room, but more likely is that people around this table know people who have experienced these things. So it's really about awareness, and that's what I go around the world now, trying to educate the community, primarily in Jewish communities, um, trying to do what I can to, to affect that cultural shift that is required. It's not about this one institution or the, or, 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 the, or the Orthodox community or in Australia. This is a global issue and we've seen it here with, with Ali Reisman and you've got the, 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 the gymnasts, you've got the swimmers, you've got, it's not a religious issue, it's every segment of society. And that's why the message needs to be the same. We need to make sure that we are, um, that there is a conversation happening around this because that's when we can actually change the culture because perpetrators are reliant, have been reliant upon the code of silence that exists, not just within the religious institutions, the code of silence because I've spoken about some of the reasons um, that they exist. But if we talk about it, then perpetrators will now be on notice, as they have been on the last, in the last few years. They'll be on notice. And if we speak about, and about the fact that Jewish leaders, because we're in the Jewish community, have a responsibility, not just to, 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 to be written that they are president of a community and they talk about pro-Israel advocacy or anti-Semitism, but that they deal with not just the external threats, but with the internal threats and stand up for justice. And this um, don't stand idly by mantra that we've heard over the decades. It's only been a mantra, unfortunately, in most communities. And I've seen it firsthand. I've traveled the world, UK Jewish community, Netherlands, the Dutch Jewish community, in South America, and of course I told you about Australia and the US, there's plenty of cases in Israel. When, when good people do nothing, this is when these situations are allowed to flourish. And I, I can say, on a final note before I open up to questions, um, from what I've seen, the incredible work of Rabbi Shmuley in a range of spheres, whether it's for, um, for immigrants, um, for, for, for children who have been put in all sorts of situations, abuse, not just uh, in, in child sexual abuse. Um, you're obviously very blessed to have an amazing rabbi, and I can tell you that my relationship with the rabbis has been very fraught over the years, and I'm, I've always been desperate to find rabbis who I can actually say, be, be proud of calling them rabbi, because they've earned it by definition, not because they've done a degree, but when someone actually practices what they preach. On that note, thank you, Rabbi, for bringing me thank here. You. Thank you. Very much. Pleasure. I'm both um, so captivated, as I'm sure everyone looks in the room, because that was like watching a movie and how well you tell your story. Um, thank and you. just feel full of, of pain, of, for the, no, the thank amount you. of pain you share in that story. But mostly just feel awestruck by the courage you've had um, as a survivor and as a, as a leader, a global leader. On this thank story. you. So thank you. Really, thank you. Um, I think what we should do, given that we only have um, 15 minutes, and I'm sure there's a bunch of questions, or, or I presume, is maybe take a few at once, um, and then you can kind of respond to what feels right, if that's okay. Um, or maybe we have none. Let's see. Yes, please. I, I have a comment. Sure. So thank you very much for sharing your story. I know it was painful and difficult and appreciate it. There was something that you said, though, that... I allowed it, and I think that sounds that you need to not blame yourself for it. You did not allow it. It's actually very interesting that you point that out because I don't always say it. It's kind of I just go with whatever comes up, and 
it struck me afterwards in my own mind that I said that I allowed it. And I often tell people what you're saying, which is it's not your fault. Of course, you didn't allow it because as an 11, 12-year-old child, um, well, it doesn't matter, till the age of 18, and when it's someone in a position of authority, and, you know, we can, in, there's a whole lot of, of course, we didn't allow it, and we're not responsible, and we're not guilty for it. But at the same time, it's not quite so simple because in your own mind, you sit back and you tell yourself, why did I follow him? Why didn't I just stop it? And then when the second perpetrator comes up, you say, I already experienced all of this. I enjoyed this. Why didn't I just stop it? And why didn't I tell anyone? Because you were a boy. There are all sorts of very logical explanations to all of it. The mind has right. has a mind of its own. It's kind of it's thoughts of its own, and it's not so simple. Yeah. But you know, the culture was not like it is in the in the Western hemisphere, where people teach their children don't talk to strangers, don't go with strangers. I mean, these are basic things that probably was never even maybe mentioned in a home where you were brought up. Correct. So, and so to even the thought in your head to not trust someone or, or to not follow someone, I would think just wouldn't come naturally. Correct. But they weren't strangers. No, they weren't strangers, but, but I'm just using that as an example of things that kids were taught. I mean, Correct. My, my daughter taught her children that no one should touch you inappropriately. Yes. No one should be allowed to, you know, yeah. you shouldn't allow anyone to touch you inappropriately. <clears throat> Yes. Okay. Yeah. But that wouldn't be something that would have ever been discussed. No. Back in those days, um, in broader society, it was much more about stranger danger anyway. And as the gentleman pointed out, the reality is most abuse, not just my abuse, but most abuse happens um, from pe by people that we know. But even more so, what I would add in this case, especially within the ultra-Orthodox community, the concept of trust is very different. Because if you go to a synagogue within an ultra-Orthodox community, it's, or, or if you belong to that community, there is an immediate trust of the person who looks like you and is a member of that community. So all you really need to have is a beard and pray a few times a day. And if I have a child, you know, I've got to run somewhere for a moment and I'm in the synagogue, I'll just find someone who looks the part and say, can you just keep an eye out? Whereas if they see any one of us here, automatically they would distrust us because we're not at their level. So that whole concept... And, and, and now they've become a little bit more of an expert in, in, you know, on the issue of child sexual abuse and what perpetrators look for. They look for vulnerable children. They look for vulnerable communities. And often I'm confronted with, why are so many rabbis pedophiles? Why are so many priests and, and all that kind of... And I explain to them, it's not that these rabbis are pedophiles or these priests are pedophiles. It is pedophiles. They are pedophiles who are looking for the best opportunity they will have to carry out their sinister intentions. And so, where do you go? You will go to where you have easy access to children. And where do you have easy access to children? Religious institutions, sporting clubs, and that's why you have many coaches, and those types of situations. And, and now, as opposed to back then, where would these pedophiles go? They wouldn't just go to these places. They will go to and identify institutions that don't address this issue in a serious way. So why bother going to somewhere where you look on their website and it says they've got policies about child protection and all that? You find there are plenty who don't have it. Or even if they do have it, they don't rigorously 
follow it or the culture is different. So that's exactly what happens. And when they go within those communities and within those institutions, they will identify the most vulnerable children. And they're adept at this because pedophiles are often very intelligent people. They know how to um, buy the, 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 the love and respect and... I'm sorry? Manipulate. Manipulate. That's the word I was looking for. They are master manipulators. And they don't just manipulate the child. Often they manipulate the entire family. I mean, Velvel Serebransky, my first abuser, was in my home constantly. And sometimes when I look through some of the photo albums, I I was shocked. I'd put it out of my mind that he was a guest at my bar mitzvah after he abused me. And only that, I found his gift to me, a book that he gave me. A bizarre book, I don't even know what the relevance is. I googled it and it's apparently a very, I never read it, I guess probably I'll never read it, but it was a very unique book. I forgot what the title of it was, but um, there were those types of situations where they get, they manipulate the parents into believing, into thinking that they are, they put themselves on, on, on boards. David Cypress, my second abuser, he was on the board in 2011 when I was speaking out. He was on the board of the Council of Orthodox Synagogues of Victoria. He was a volunteer, a respected volunteer with a community security group. So they position themselves like that so that when or if usually a lone victim who's often got a horrible track record because they've been on drugs and no family environment and no this and no that, and then it's his word against his word, who's going to win in the majority of cases? We know. So that, that was another motivation for me to speak out because I felt at the time I'm not a drug dealer falling, you know, someone on the street with a heroin needle. I've got a family, I've got a job, I've got seen as a success story. I'm in the Jewish community, a senior leader. I should, there is a misconception about what a victim of abuse looks like. So I distinctly remember that that was one of the motivations for me to speak out at the time. So, yeah. You referred to looking alike. You trust people because you work yes. in a synagogue. You made reference to sporting clubs, the Catholic Church. Do you think this is more prevalent in what I refer to as an insular group? Yes. Where it's already an us against them situation where you don't you trust everyone in your group, you don't trust the outsider? Yes, I, um, absolutely. It's a great question, and evidence-based research-based evidence suggests that that is precisely the case. The most, clo- the more closed the community, the more likelihood of something like that happens because there's that allegiance towards that group. So even as as this psychiatrist who I was referring to before that I used to uh, talk to often, he said to me, even if it's a bird watching club, it's. Ultimately, if there's a bit of a scandal that devel- develops within, the commu- within that group, they will look the other way if a member is being hurt. But once it's that group that is being hurt and affected, detrimentally impacted, they will all come and fight for that community group. What is your current um, relationship with Judaism and with your family, your parents and your siblings? Uh, great question. Okay, my relationship with my family is the simpler one. Um, out of the 16 brothers and sisters, I have some very close relationships. I've got some relationships that are non-existent, and I've got some that are somewhere in between. So I would say that, you know, the vast majority kind of is, 
because they all live around the world, different parts of the world. I've got a few, like four or five in Florida, two or three in New York, a few in Melbourne, a few in Sydney, a few in Israel. So literally, so it's really, the relationship usually is, um, you know, looking away from this particular issue. I was always close with those who are being close in terms of age and in religious outlook, because those who are ultra-Orthodox are just, what can we talk about? You know, family stuff, and you know, so there's that relationship um, limitation um, that we have. But my, and my parents, it's an interesting one. Um, I've neglected to mention that as after the Royal Commission, or actually just before the Royal Commission, the public hearing in February 2015, my father decided that he was going to leave the Chabad movement. So he trimmed his beard, uh, which is massive. He was a member for 40 years of Chabad, and um, that was a very difficult step for him. My mother, on the other hand, is still Chabad. They're married, uh, which is complicated. So he, he, he's, now, he's still Orthodox, very religious, praise three times a day and more. And um, it's funny because Nay tells me how extreme my mother is. And, <laughs> and I, we came over for, for Passover. I don't know if you've seen these. Like, uh, Ultra-Orthodox people often put um, uh, the silver foil everywhere. So at my house, that's what they did. And I came over for Passover. And my dad is complaining to me that my mum is doing that in his kitchen, in their kitchen. <laughs> but because he wouldn't do that, only what he would do is just wrap up individual things and I'm looking at him, and, like, and then he's looking at my face, and he understands how ridiculous it all sounds. Like, to me, he, she's, to him, she's extreme. To me, he's extreme. So it's all, I guess, a matter of perception and, and what you're, what, where you want to focus on. Um, religion is always an issue, and it kind of goes connect, connected to your um, initial question, which was about my relationship with religion, and it's intertwined with my family involvement and background. Anything I do now religiously based or involved is not for me, is really for my kids. Um, I won't say that I'm agnostic. Uh, sorry, I won't say that I'm, um, that I'm uh, an, atheist. an atheist, thank you. Rather, I'm probably more on the agnostic side simply because I, 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 I'm more rational. I need evidence. Is there a God? I don't know. I, I'm almost certain there is no God in the vision that I grew up, which is there is this... God who's running the world from up there and even though we're not allowed to envision what he is, and of course it's a he, um, but we kind of have this vision of someone who's just controlling everything. Um, and of course that for us growing up, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was very much the Messiah, the messianic look. So, but I won't, I won't delve into that, but so... My relationship with my religion, with Judaism, is really to try. I've gone through a journey, and you know, a year ago and a few months ago, maybe even different to where it is now. But I can, I value a lot of the wonderful aspects of Judaism. Community, firstly, just the concept of community. Um, the mantras that I was talking about before—they're lovely, but we just need to implement them. Um, I also, on the other hand, I found myself to be ashamed of my Jewishness sometimes, where we have these 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 uh, constant um, uh, um, issues and, and scandals, especially when they involve senior rabbis. I mean, I don't know if people are aware, but Israel's 
chief rabbi, former chief rabbi, is currently sitting in jail. Not talking about the past president and prime ministers and, and all those other issues, but let's talk about just the, the religious leadership. The rabbinate is corrupt. And I used to be very careful and less generic, but I've seen enough instances within the Orthodox rabbinate in Israel, in Australia, elsewhere. In Australia, I'm talking about the example in Australia. Four senior rabbis, all happen to be Chabad again, in Sydney, were found just a few weeks ago to be in contempt of court. Okay, Because of what they did in the Beth Din, trying to intimidate someone to agree to come under, whatever the reason is, they were found to be in contempt. They appealed it and they lost it. Including the, including the current president of the Rabbinic Council of Australia and New Zealand, the very entity that was established after the other organisation was shut down because of the corruption and the rotten, rottenness of the rabbinate. So you're asking me how I view my relationship to Judaism. I don't think all rabbis are rotten. I think there's some beautiful rabbis and we've got one in the room. And there are many others. I know many others. And my brother, one of my brothers, I've got a few rabbis who are, brother, who are rabbis. Uh, one who I'm very close to, he's a modern orthodox. So there are many wonderful things. And there are many, and I, and I, and I think the, the concept of Friday night dinners and family and all that, it's great. But what, what my abuse, the abuse did to me, and I'm not talking about just the, check, the, the sexual abuse, I'm talking about the more recent abuse where rabbis either stood by or were actively involved in, in the intimidation process. I don't have a very positive view of, of, of Judaism and of rabbis and the potential. I, I understand where we can go and where we need to go and there are many, many wonderful concepts, but the pain that so many of us have experienced and the ongoing corruption that we see, um, I guess, is something that uh, will probably never allow me to fully trust people who are within the rabbinate and in that circle. But I don't want to live on, on, leave on, on a bad negative for, and it's eight thirty. so we do. Closing, uh, with your closing response, you'll just share, uh, what would you ask of us? Um, Excellent. Perfect. Excellent. That's an optimistic, positive way, which is really what I said before. It's about continuing the conversation because the more we talk about it amongst each other, um, amongst ourselves, within the family environment, our kids, our grandkids will overhear or will hopefully even be engaged with us. And then it will be in, in, in the next generation, we'll, we'll, the starting point will be a lot further developed and evolved than where we are now. And that is what is going to protect children. Because you can train kids as much as you want. Yes, you don't allow anyone to touch you. But those smart and manipulative uh, abusers will find a way to even get to some of the stronger ones and the ones who are educated. So we need to have this conversation. And just as importantly, don't stand idly by because so many people have, including leaders, and it's one of the toughest things when you suspect something and you don't have proof if it's really happening or not. When do you step up? When, do, when is it right for me? Maybe what I just heard, the screaming or the inappropriate things from the neighbours that's going on, is it abuse or is it a parent losing their cool as we all do. But we need to be attentive to our surroundings. We need to make sure that the, the, the synagogue that we go to or the institutions that we go to, and you see there are kids there, do they have policies and procedures around this issue? Essentially, it is for the greater good of our community. And once we all get to that level, we'll be a safer community. Thank you all so much.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.